0: And then we come back next week as a group, as God's people, we come back together to practice again. So you kind of think of it as choir practice or, uh, you know, it's where we come to, to prepare for the game of life, the, the real thing out there. The 20th century British politician Harold Nicholson once said, the great secret of a successful marriage is to treat all disasters as incidents and none of the incidents as disasters. Um, I suspect anybody that's been married for a while can relate to that, uh, but uh, that would be one way to muddle through, but I'm very certain that God wants us to do much better than that. Uh, so, I trust that that's why you're here tonight, wherever you're at. Some of you are unmarried, some of you uh, have been married for a while. And uh, wherever you're at, you want to do better. Just like in the Christian life, individually, uh, a person uh, becomes a Christian and then God begins to work. Somebody says, do you accept people the way they are? And I say, of course. But we don't let them stay the way they are. God doesn't, right? God begins to work in us to change us, to transform us, to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ. And the same thing's true with marriage. However good it is, it can be better. Because it's not perfect yet. And if you're not married yet, uh, you're gonna see the importance, I think, of having a plan. Of preparing yourself for that. So, uh, how much effort goes into planning a wedding in many cases? A lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of focus, photographers, tuxes, dresses, flowers, music invitations gifts it's a huge celebration it's great but oftentimes there's a lot more of that goes in into a wedding than goes into a marriage and it's the marriage that is the thing that matters and so preparation for marriage is far more critical than preparation for a wedding uh, marriage is, of course, challenging work under the best of circumstances, and so I want you, as God's people, to have the best of circumstances. In order to do that, then you're going to have to have some tools in your toolbox. Pardon me for shifting metaphors. I'll probably do that quite a bit. Uh, but the, these tools that you need to have a great marriage also need to be sharp. I'm a woodworker, as you know and i just bought a new tool and i'm excited about it but a little scared because tools are powerful and if you don't know how to use them they can hurt you and if they so you need tools that are in good condition you need to know how they how they work and how they, how not to use them and uh, in order for them to be productive this will involve having a sound theology of marriage now theology a good way to remember theology the word theology just means you wanna learn to think about whatever the subject is, the way God thinks about it. Theology is just the study of God. Well, i say it's the study of what God thinks. He's revealed himself in scripture and the Bible speaks either directly or indirectly about everything. And we wanna discover what God has to say about marriage. What does he think about it? He invented it. He created male and female. And he gave the direction for them to become one flesh. And so we want to conform our thinking to his. There's all kinds of thinking out there about marriage, including whatever I've picked up here or there uh, through every kind of source in the culture. And so I have to come and say that some of that's wrong. Some of that is not healthy. Some of that is not right and not true. And if I have a false view about some aspect of marriage, then it's going to produce some really bad results. And if I haven't even given it much thought, that can even be worse. Then I I have all these kind of assumptions that are in there that I hadn't really thought about. Some of them might even be contradictory with one another, but they're still going to bear fruit because every idea has consequences. So we want a sound theology, uh, which provides that sound or firm foundation to build on. From there, we can begin to build a solid structure that will withstand the various storms of life. It's one thing we don't like to think about, but there will be storms. Life isn't even. Life is scary. This is a fallen world. Things are broken. People get sick. People die. We have financial difficulties and challenges. we have all kinds of problems that come our way, and if you don't have tools in your toolbox and those tools are not sharp or you don't know how to use them, the problems are going to come anyway. And so it's a matter of those who are equipped, amazingly, seem to handle those problems way better. And, uh, and so that's why it is critical for us to give this thought and to have a plan and so forth. The ultimate goal is a marriage and a family that will glorify God and faithfully represent Christ and his church to the world. This will be a joy for you. And not only will it be a blessing for you, and not only a blessing for your family and your children and your grandchildren, it'll actually be a blessing to the whole world. Your neighbors, it'll it'll just have ramifications that... Play out. Just like if someone, if you have a dysfunctional family, as we like to politely, uh, euphemistically call a broken family, uh, a dysfunctional family has those same ramifications, same impact, generationally and immediately as well. Well, I've benefited from countless books, lessons, and sermons uh, on the subject of marriage over the years, in fact, so many that I could not even begin to remember them all. Uh, so these lessons are a compilation of what I have learned and accumulated over these many years. I did want to mention four books that I've relied on and that I would highly recommend to you. Some of you have them. Um, one is by Robert Capon called Bed and Board, one of the best books on marriage that I've read. It's a lot of fun. He's a great writer. Uh, he passed away about four or five years ago, uh, but just an outstanding book. Um, Bed and Board refers to the bed, uh, the marriage bed, as well as the dining table, the board. Uh, And he says those are the two geographic centers of our homes, and we operate everything from those two places. So great book. Uh, Another book I was recently introduced to, uh, to and really like, called The Mystery of Marriage by Mike Mason. Uh, Really very thoughtful book. Uh, Some ideas that I have not really thought through as deeply before, and he he did a great job there. Two Doug Wilson books. He has obviously a number of books on the family. Uh, For a Glory and a Covering, uh, A Practical Theology of Marriage. I'll have gleaned a number of things out of this that we'll have in these lessons. Uh, I'd call this a mature pastor's perspective on marriage. This isn't like the book you necessarily read. It'd be fine to read it before you get married. Uh, He has other books for that. I'd say this book's a little more focused on people who have been married for a little while. And then another one that I just like, I give to people frequently, that he wrote called My Life for Yours in which case he takes the Christian home, every room of the house, and says, this is what a Christian living room looks like, and this is what a Christian kitchen looks like, and a Christian bedroom, and all the places of the house. He uses that as a metaphor for us to see what that image looks like. We need images in our lives. We need role models. We need examples. We need images because we tend to conform to that. By the way, that is what we do on Sunday mornings with the liturgy, is we create an image, uh, a dance, if you will, that uh, we go through those that pattern week after week after week in order to create that image of life, of worship, of, of how we're to, to live before God. Now, question. How much of marriage is romance or passion? Just think about that. What percentage of a husband and wife's relationship? Anybody want to throw a number out? Well, you can break it up however you want. Is it most of marriage? I'm asking this because I think about this when, when couples are dating and preparing for marriage or looking for a spouse. That's pretty high on the list, and I'm all for it. I think, in fact, if you're not in love, don't get married. Okay? If there's not any passion, there's something wrong. Okay? but when you think about the actual marriage on a day-to-day basis if you, first of all when you think about those very high romantic moments you know a candlelit dinner and soft music and kisses and you know you make love and it's beautiful but it's momentary dishes still have to get washed bills still have to get paid. The vacuum has to get run. Um, You have to go to work. People get sick and you have to clean up when people get sick, right? They didn't tell you that part about marriage, right? You know about that, right? The dirty diapers, the exhaustion when you, instead of making love in that bed, you just pass out from pure exhaustion and uh, As I think Robert Capon says in regard to the marriage bed, sometimes you just go to that retreat and you fall in the bed, both exhausted, and you pat each other on the behind, and it's a form of unction. It's like, good night, I'll see you tomorrow. We'll try it again. I want us to think a little bit about what goes into a marriage, how much, uh, again, on the front side, it tends to focus on that part, sometimes to the exclusion of these other parts. That's the problem. So I think romance should underlie all of it. It's an essential thing that's always there, but not always. Think of it this way. Uh, uh, emotions can be this way. Uh, you can be you could be mildly agitated, or you could be in a rage. They're kind of the same emotion. Uh, Robert L. Dabney says... Uh, uh, our feelings are the temperature of thought. Uh, so sometimes it's it's low and sometimes it's high. And, and so let's think of romance that way in a marriage, that sometimes it's just in the background. It is, yes, I love you. Uh, and you remember, uh, have you seen Fiddler on the Roof? You remember that song in there where, uh, is it, and Tebby? Tebbia asked his wife, Do you love me? What'd you say, Henry? Yeah, do you love me? And she, and they break into song, it's a musical, and, uh, she says, after 45 years, I've cleaned your clothes, I've cooked your meals, and now you ask me, do I love you? And they go back and, and he says, yes, do you love me? And they go back and forth. And finally, you know, she says, yes, I love you. But there's a whole bunch of that other that isn't, an example of love too, right? It's about self-sacrifice and service and kindness and all those things that go into this. So I want us to think just for a moment and get a little feedback here. I picked out three things to compare marriage to as an analogy. One is the human body. One is a city. And one is a business. What are some of the things in those things that might be in common with a marriage. Um, Somebody get me started. I realize I have them written down, so I know what I'm looking for, but you don't. But give that some thought. What makes up each of those things? Yes, John? Okay, so management and expectations. uh, So... uh, and I would say, generally, management. Period. Right? We've got to all kinds of things to be managed in in these things. What else? Yeah, finances. They all take money. Right? You got to have, I say, money. You got to have resources. You, whether it's food or shelter or you know, place for your business or the city hall or the roads or uh, your body obviously has to have food and nourishment. Um, what else? Commitment. commitment. Okay, everybody who's... Yeah, there, there's a unifying thing, right? A leader. There's, hierarchy is, whether you name it or not, is an inescapable concept. Somebody is going to be in charge. somebody's going to be under that. Uh, it just happens. You take 10 people and put them together whether you give it a name or not. So let's let's talk about how does that work in your body? Are there parts of your body more important than others? If you lost your left arm, that would be a big deal. If you lost your head, it would be a bigger deal. You'd be dead. You've got to have a head. You don't have to have an arm. So there's a hierarchy in the human body. How about in business? Somebody's the boss, somebody's upper management, middle management. Somebody's a little man on the totem pole, right? Uh, how about in the city? There's the mayor and the city council, and then there's the citizens. How about pleasure and pain? You have all that in all of these problems that come up, but also successes, right, that occur. How about uh, the division of labor? That's partly what John meant about management, but in order for any of these to function, the hand doesn't do what the foot does. And so we have all kinds of people doing different things, but doing it in such a way that there's harmony, hopefully, in order to produce the desired result. You gotta have provisions. That's back to the financial thing, right? So, whether if it's a business, you gotta have all your inventory and you gotta uh, make sure you've got what you need to run your business, uh, pay the bills in your house. Uh, again, all of this. What about um, there's life and death. What would happen to a business who didn't take care of their finances? Or their or didn't have an organizational chart for who was, who was in charge of what. There wasn't a division of labor. We didn't discuss that. How long would that business last? Well, it would die, right? We see businesses dying right now because they can't be open uh, to have customers. Same thing with a city that's mismanaged. Same with the human body. If you don't take care of it, it'll die. All of that and more is true of a marriage. There's a husband, there's wife, there's children, there's pleasure, pain, I I wrote out some things, food, sex, entertainment, there's different functions, division of labor, nutrition, provision, conflict, sickness, success, failure, life, death. So as you're looking for a spouse, if you're looking for one, or as you uh, consider these things, uh, don't just look at whether there's a saying somebody had, I don't know who said it, in order to get the dimple, guys, you got to marry the whole girl. Um, Don't just look at the thing that you're initially attracted to. You better look at the whole package and say, we're going to become one, and we're going to become like a business, like a body, like a city uh, in these ways, and all of those things are going to be important. But it's very likely your spouse is really good at some things you're not good at. That's why you need each other. The Bible says Adam needed a helper. He didn't need a servant. He needed somebody to come alongside of him and do things he couldn't do. He was needy. Now, all of these, again, are both organizations and organisms. They're complex. They require laws, that is, Rules they require they change over time so a newlywed versus somebody been married 50 years is different a business that's just starting up versus one that's been there 50 years um, they involve relationships that change also a hierarchy again do they all need a plan what happens without a plan Exactly. They're all going to face unexpected circumstances. That's kind of an oxymoron because you need to expect unexpected things. How do you do that? If I don't know what's coming next, how do I do that? Give me some feedback. What would you do in your marriage if you say, we want to be prepared for the unexpected. What do you think you need to do to be prepared for that. If you if you want to be prepared for uh, COVID or some other unknown disease, what what are some general things you might want to do? What? Learn about it. How about take care of your body? How about do healthy things? Take some vitamins or. Exercise or do things you you want to do to be as healthy as you can so that if you do get it, you're more apt to be able to fight it off. How about your marriage? You need to do things to make your marriage healthy, your relationship healthy and strong. If you're working together, if, if I am working to make my wife stronger and better and she's working to make me stronger and better, And we're not enemies and we're not undercutting each other and we're not undermining the other person because we're so insecure that we can't let anybody ever get ahead of us. We need to be building each other up so that when those unexpected things come, those storms come, we're prepared. We're now a team. We're now ready to take this on. So... I want to start with some advice that I've been giving single adults regarding the kind of spouse they need to look for. And they shouldn't have to look hard to find these qualities. So you're not having to really... uh, These things should be fairly obvious. And the reason I'm mentioning, I know we have both married and unmarried here. So I've been giving this advice to unmarried, but I want to give it also to the married because it's important for us those that are married, to evaluate themselves in light of this. And I'm going to keep it really simple. Um, there are three essential qualities, I think, for a good husband and a good, or a good wife, and then I want to expand on those. But think of these as just headings. Um, so essential qualities. Number one, Godliness. Somebody that loves God. I'm going to come, let, me, let me give you all three, and then we'll come back and talk about each one. Godliness, kindness, and diligence. That's all you have to remember. Godliness, kindness, and, gent- and diligence. And so they might have other qualities. He might be handsome, she might be pretty, funny, smart, rich. Those are all bonus qualities, but they're not essential. The three that I mentioned are essential. You can have all those others, and if you don't have all these, all three of these, I'd say all three are necessary in order to be sufficient. Two out of three is not good enough. So godly, the first. So I want to expand on these. Godliness just basically means somebody that loves God. David preached on that this morning out of Luke 14. Okay, supreme love for God. Is he a Christian? Well, I think so. Not good enough. Does she love the Lord? Well, I'm pretty sure she does. No. I mean like, oh, absolutely. I know that. That, There's no question that that's a priority. Why is that important? Well, I want to suggest at least three things. Number one, that person has a commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They have a boss. They have a king. They have somebody they think they're accountable to for their behavior and their attitudes and what they do and say. You want your spouse to have that. If they're their own king, if they're their own boss, and they just do whatever they want to do, you're in trouble. So you better have somebody that loves God first so that they can love you the way you need to be loved. Knowledge of and commitment to God's word is part of godliness. i got to know what he says. And so there are laws, there are rules that govern me. I'm, I'm not just out here doing my own thing. I'm a, I am governed under God's word, which is going to also tell me what kind of husband I'm supposed to be and how I'm to love my wife and my children and what God requires of me in terms of worship and all the other things in life. This godly person has the established habit of worship, both private and public. It's not just something that's a ticket going to heaven. This is somebody who's living this. It's a habit of their life. Many of you heard me say, the decision to go to church isn't made every week. It's made once. So don't marry somebody who doesn't have that as a habit already. That's who we are, not just what we do so godliness second kindness which is obviously the first one is love god with all your heart soul mind and strength and kindness is love your neighbor as yourself the two great commandments why why is kindness so important well number one it involves self denial if i can't deny myself i'm not ready to be married Self-denial, of course, is how we start following Jesus, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And I've got to do the same thing, and and you need to marry someone who's willing to deny themselves because selfishness is at the heart of a sinner's problem. That is immaturity. You've heard me say this many times. Two two two-year-olds in a room with one toy. That's my definition of immaturity all about me and by the way we'll, we'll deal with this more when we deal with child training issues and marriage but uh, your number one well, your, your two number your number one and number two jobs raising kids is teach them how to respect you and pretty much everybody else in the world and teach them to and teach them to, to not be selfish which means you're going to make them cry sometimes because you're gonna tell them no sometimes. Maybe a lot, okay? And they'll thank you for it someday when they are mature adults that realize the world doesn't revolve around them. And they'll make somebody a really good spouse and they'll raise your grandkids and teach them the same thing and we will change the world, but I digress. We'll come back to changing the world later, okay? Kindness involves service to others, broad-ranging, especially to the weak, not just their friends. Find out how he treats his mother. Find out how she interacts with her father. Now, I know there's exceptions and difficult situations, but I'm saying there's all kinds of ways. Look around. How does, how does that person interact with children or people who are obnoxious? Um, how do they deal with other human beings? In other words, kindness means you've got somebody full of grace. Remember we had the law of God under loving God. We want God to tell us what to do. We want rules, but also need grace. I need to be able to sympathize and show that kindness. So if he's not kind and she's not kind run for your life. Third, diligence or faithfulness. Another way to put that is you need to marry somebody who works hard, follows through, keeps their promises, provides, protects. Why? Because you're going to need that every day going forward. And there's lots of ways that shows itself But one of the first ways you'll see it is this person keep their promises. You're going to need that, right? So that's diligence, follow through. They do hard things. Yeah, they said they'd do it, and they did it. They didn't want to do it, but they did it anyway. That's somebody you can rely on. That's somebody you can trust. So as you think about yourself as a spouse... Or a future spouse, you need to do an honest self-evaluation as well as getting input from other people. Don't just rely on your self-evaluation. Ask people who know you, how am I doing here? So these three things determine your relative value. I always like to ask, are there people in the world that you look at and you say, I wouldn't marry that person if they were the last person on earth? There, that's true, right? And see, but we, most of it as Christians, we've been taught you're not ever supposed to say you think you're better than anybody else, but you actually are better than some other people. You might be smarter than they are. You might be more talented than they are. You might be able to sing better than they sing. There's all kinds of ways you might be superior. Now, you're not a superior being before God, but there are people you look at and say, I'd rather be single. Okay? So, given that, everybody has a relative value. And when we get married, when two people get married and they say, I do, they both ought to think when they say that. uh, I know Allison and Will just said that recently. They both ought to be thinking, I'm getting a good deal. So, because of the relative value. So the the more of these things that you have, the better your marriage will be. The less of them you have, the worse your marriage will be, and it may even be a failed marriage. The good news is all three of these things can be improved, which increases your value. Now, there's some things about me and you that we can't change. You can't be taller. There's lots of things you can't change. All of these things can be improved because of the work of God, sanctification in our lives. Um, The bad news is that few people self-consciously work on improving these things. You see, it is possible to have two Christians that are married to one another and yet fail to have a genuinely Christian marriage. How is that? Um, you can have a school where everybody there, a Christian school, where everybody there, if a bomb went off and they all died, they'd all go to heaven. But that doesn't make, does, does not make that a Christian school if they're not teaching the subjects from a biblical perspective. You can have two people, a husband and a wife, that if they died, they'd go to heaven. But they might be living in a type of hell in their family because they're not living like Christians. They're not implementing, they hadn't thought about it. They haven't applied God's word to that relationship. And so it can be in that sense unchristian. It's not glorifying God. There are it's ugly. It's not a picture of the gospel. No one plans for a marriage to fail. I've never, in doing premarital counseling, I've never had anybody say, part of our plans are we figure this, we might do this for three or four years and then give up, okay? The first couple I ever married, um, they weren't members of my church. Uh, I worked with this young lady and I remember sitting in my office with them and they were so starry-eyed in love Lots of romance, probably too much romance, if you know what I mean. And I know they weren't hearing a word I was saying about in premarital. So we do this wedding. I did it at First Baptist in uh, in Texarkana, um, and big, big wedding. A year later, I get a call. They moved to Dallas. She was in tears. We need to meet with you. Sitting in the same office, on the same, they were sitting on the same sofa instead of sitting where you couldn't slip a piece of paper between them the first time, Uh, now they were on opposite ends of the sofa, looking away from each other. And I think if they'd have had guns, they would have shot each other. And they were divorced within six months after that. How does that happen? They didn't... If you'd have suggested that, they would have thought you were crazy. Um, And so... I have pastored for over 36 years and I've had the opportunity to offer marriage counseling to many couples with a wide variety of marital problems. I've seen successes and failures and I've seen progress and regress. But few blessings are greater than the blessing of a great marriage and few miseries are greater than the miseries of a bad one. And so I'm almost to a stopping place here. As I prepared this class, um, I had many couples from the past in mind and many married couples for the future in mind. And so I'm I'm going to be attempting to speak the truth in love. That's a nice way of saying some of this might hurt. I am not on your side or your spouse's side. Rather, I want to be on the Lord's side, who is ultimately, of course, on both your sides. Moreover, I have your children and your grandchildren in mind as well. There is no greater lesson taught and no greater inheritance given to your children than your marriage. None. A father and a mother that love God and love each other are of incalculable value. Make no mistake, you are teaching and giving them something in this regard. They're learning what's important how to resolve conflicts, how to love, how to show respect, how to forgive, and how to glorify God. They're learning that every day, whether you realize you're teaching it or not, you are. So um, we're going to take about a 10-minute break and come back, and um, we'll have some time for Q&A here at the end as well. I'm just going to go until we run out of time, and we'll take up where we left off next time. So go ahead and take a break. There's refreshments in the foyer. One big mistake that people make in marriages is trying to fix their spouse. Um, or if you're unmarried, assuming that once you are married, then you'll fix them. Um, not a good idea. Um now, I think it's important to remember uh, all the things the Bible teaches us about being Christians is critical. We started talking about how at church it's easy to be a Christian, then we walk out the door and it increasingly gets harder, but all the instructions of the Bible about how we're to treat our neighbors uh, applies even more so to our spouses because our spouses are our closest neighbors, and that's why, you know... God puts us there and then of course if we have children they they're close neighbors as well and that's where the biggest challenges come um but all the things Jesus teaches us about loving our neighbors applies especially there and so um I don't think I'm going to take the time to go through all of this cuz I have like three pages of it and I'm certainly not going to read all the passages but um I'd be happy to share this with you or bring some copies It is the one another passages of the New Testament. I'll just give you a quick sample. So all of these things, when the Bible says we're to do this to one another, means that starts with our closest neighbor, which means it should start with our spouses. Jesus, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Be kindly affectionate to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. O no one anything except to love one another. Uh, let us not judge one another. Um, pursue the things that make for peace and the things by which one may edify one an- edify another. Um, may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, receive one another, admonish one another, greet one another. Um, You should have the same care for one another. Through love, serve one another. Um, Let us not uh, become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, bear one another's burdens. And I've got two more pages of those. All of those, that's a great place if you want a little Bible study at your house. That's the uh, to do list for our houses. Our marriages, and immediately before the Apostle Paul addresses the particular duties and responsibilities of husbands and wives in Ephesians, starting in Ephesians 5:22, which is a passage I read it almost always at weddings. Uh, husbands love your wives, and wives respect your husbands, and ch- talks about goes on to talk about children as well. But immediately before that passage, it's important to have the context. And here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5:15 through 21. See then that you walk or live circumspectly, in other words, looking at yourself, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Everybody want to know what God's will is? Here it is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That means we hear a lot about wives submit to your husbands. This text says husbands submit to your wives. It says all of you submit to each other. There is a sense. Now as we're going to see there are different jobs to be done, different tasks, and we're going to say we'll say more about how all that works and and it's not the way most people think about it. Uh, but we but right now I want to say the, the groundwork for the marriage and the family is mutual submission. I put you first. You put me first. If we both do that, we're going to have a better marriage. I, I look after your interest, she looks after my interest, and lo and behold, as the next passage is going to say to husbands, men, he loves his wife, loves himself. Because if you're both one, and if you're loving each other, if you're submitting to one another, then you become a team. You accomplish the mission that you've been given, which we'll say more about later. So if you're a true follower of Jesus, then you know already what it means to deny yourself. And so now you have to continue denying yourself for the sake of your spouse. Um, Marriage, uh, this is a quote from Doug Wilson's For a Glory and a Covering. Marriage is instituted by the triune God. And when rightly understood, it is one of the most glorious pictures of the gospel ever given to man. And of course, when it is abused, as it often is, it presents a potent false gospel as well. And Christians, that's why it's so critical for us to make sure we're telling the truth about Christ and the church. That's not just a some kind of a metaphor in the Bible that is to be passed over lightly. I want to suggest that your marriage is the metaphor. The real fundamental relationship is Christ and the church, and our marriages are to reflect that truth. Just like the true tabernacle is in heaven, and at the end of time we'll come down to the new heavens and the new earth, the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness was a model, like a ship in a bottle. That was the metaphor. The tabernacle that was on the earth or the temple that was on the earth was simply a, a reflection. Um, we would call it an analog, if for those of you familiar with that term. Um, the logical and the analogical, uh, the real, as C.S. Lewis says, this this world is only shadows. The real world is yet to come. Our marriages are to be reflecting Christ and the church. And so your marriage either affirms or denies the gospel of grace. And the more mindful we are of that, when we go awry, and we do because we're sinners, that ought to be calling us immediately That's why every Sunday when we confess our sins, why? Because we realize we've got to get back on track. We've got to get back where we need to be. That happens daily, sometimes in our families. And if we've developed the habit of getting that taken care of, keeping short accounts, and staying where we need to be, then that's how we uh, make progress here and develop good habits Uh, In addition, the world is also watching you in your marriage to see if your marriage is real or phony. When I go to a wedding and I hear the vows, I'm thinking, do they really mean it? We'll see. Um, Does this married Christian couple have any more joy, hope, and contentment than unbelievers do? And so I like to ask, is there a light at your house? Has Christ made any difference in the lives of this couple? Does your marriage glorify God? What does it mean to glorify something? I like to use the illustration of a bride. Okay, So we've had a number of those recently. And so what happens on the wedding day is we have a glorified woman. She may be as lovely as can be on an average day, but on this day... We put her in a special dress and she spends three days getting her hair done and her nails done and has 18 attendants to get her ready for what? Uh, Those doors opening at the back of the church where we all turn and look and we see her in her glory. Christ says that's how he is going to present the church to his father. Spotless and without blemish. That's the picture of glory. We were made for glory. We're in the image of God. Now that can become sinful and prideful. We we can mess almost everything up. But when we do it right, your marriage ought to be glorious. Everybody ought to look at you. I don't mean in a showboat kind of way. I mean in that beautiful, humble, wow, I want to be like them kind of way. That's the glory. You want your kids especially to say that. So does your marriage glorify God? Does it point to Him? Does it magnify Him? Uh, Your marriage was designed to show the world Jesus and His bride, not perfectly, but essentially. That's what you committed to when you got married in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You promised to love, honor, and cherish one another until you die regardless of the circumstances. You entered a solemn covenant and the stakes couldn't be higher. Covenant blessings or covenant curses are the only two alternatives in marriage. Um, if If we keep our promises and we do what God said to do, blessings come. If we don't, Miseries come. I'm not saying it's simple, but it is... um, I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's simple. It is pretty much... That's the way it works. Um, You entered a solemn covenant, and the stakes, again, couldn't be higher. Uh, These may vary in degree, the obedience or disobedience, the faithfulness or unfaithfulness, but the fruit of your marriage will tend toward one or the other. We don't stay the same. And so, with your marriage, much is at stake. Your holiness, your happiness, your children's holiness and happiness, your grandchildren's holiness and happiness for a thousand generations, the Bible says, and your testimony to the world. Now, you've probably heard all or some of this before, which is good, but it's not sufficient. Knowing what to do and actually doing it, of course, are two different things. So I'm asking you to listen more carefully and earnestly this time to what you already know. Being reminded what we already know is a good thing, but perhaps this time you'll hear something new as well. You might be discouraged since you might have been at a point like this in the past. Uh, In fact, you might feel that Things are worse than they were before, and in fact, they might be worse. But if they're worse, they're worse for a reason. Maybe it's because marriage counseling or marriage classes don't work. Perhaps the pastor is incompetent. A real possibility. The counselor's not valid, the counsel's not valid, or the counsel's not rooted in Scripture. On the other hand, it could be that those uh, being counseled, either are ignoring the Bible or don't believe the Bible, don't take it seriously. It could be that the pastor, the counsel, and the Bible are just fine, but the counselee doesn't work. The student doesn't work. They don't take God's word seriously. And so when true followers of Jesus understand that their marriage, perhaps more than anything else, must reflect the glory of Christ, uh, their focus shifts, and they began to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in their marriage. While the sins of husbands and wives can seriously mar the glory of marriage and the image of marriage, uh, making what was intended to be beautiful grow very ugly, believers know that, the, that God is powerful that his word is true, that sin has a remedy, and that the Holy Spirit is not only at work in us, but work at work in our marriage. Little things that can make a difference here. I want to just pause because it's important that we not just deal with all this in some kind of theory up here. Talking to each other, praying together, and being in God's word together and worshiping together Is critical. That's the baseline. If you're not doing those things, then I assure you, you are headed for trouble if you're not already there. Now, again, I know none of us are perfect in these things. Things happen. But those ought to be the exceptions. That's why developing habits, I tell young, you know, about to be married, the things you do the first six months are probably the things you'll do six years from now or 20 years from now it's not that it's not possible to change and to improve. It's just harder because habits are made as creatures of habit. But um, having a good theology of marriage is critical. And so I want to talk probably the rest of our time here, a good bit of it, about that. What does God think about marriage? Which is another way of saying what should I think about marriage? So marriage is invented by God, created by God. Why? Well, we certainly don't know all the counsel of God, but we do know what he's told us, and so we can know those things. Deuteronomy 29:29: the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. So God has told us what we need to know here. So again, theology is just thinking about a subject, what God thinks and has revealed about the subject. And so the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before the creation, in all eternity past, were and are a communion of love, a community of love. The creation of the world and the creation of man and woman were expansions of that eternal communion of love. It was an expanding community. Now, I'm going to read a longer quote here, partly because I just like it. A few of you have heard it. It's from Robert Capon. And he answers the question, let me tell you why God made the world. So, as he's going to say here, this sounds perhaps a little crass of an analogy, but in a minute you'll see. One afternoon, before anything was made, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat around in the unity of their Godhead discussing one of the Father's fixations. From all eternity, it seems, he had this thing about being. He would keep thinking up all kinds of unnecessary things, new ways of being and new kinds of being and to be. And as they talked, God the Son suddenly said, really? This is absolutely great stuff. Why don't I go out and mix us, mix us up a batch? And God the Holy Spirit said, Terrific, I'll help you. So they all pitched in, and after supper that night, the Son and the Holy Spirit put on this tremendous show of being for the Father. It was full of water and light and frogs and pine cones kept dropping all over the place and crazy fish swam around in the wine glasses. There were mushrooms and mastodons, grapes and geese, tornadoes and tigers and men and women everywhere to taste them to juggle them to join them and to love them and God the father looked at the whole wild party and said wonderful just what I had in mind good 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 and all God the son and God the Holy Spirit could think of to say was the same thing good 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 So they shouted together, very good, and they laughed for ages and ages, saying things like how great it was for beings to be, and how clever of the Father to think of the idea, and how kind of the Son to go to all that trouble putting it together, and how considerate of the Spirit to spend so much time directing and choreographing. And forever and ever they told old jokes, and the Father and the Son drank their wine in the unity of the Holy Spirit, and they all threw ripe olives and pickled mushrooms at each other, world without end. Amen. Now he says, It is, I grant you, a crass analogy, but crass analogies are the safest. Everybody knows that God is not three old men throwing olives at each other. Not everyone, I'm afraid, is equally clear that God is not a cosmic force or a principle of being or any other dish of sweet dessert, we might choose to call him. Accordingly, I give you the central truth that creation is the result of a Trinitarian bash, and leave the details of the analogy to sort themselves out as best they can. So God creates man and woman. In and He says, in, in, in Genesis, He says, "Let us create them in our image." So male and female, these two image bearers of God are created. And we know how the story unfolds in Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, a reflection of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being one. This mystery, this fabulous mystery of oneness. In Micah 2.5, God says, But did he, that is God, not make them one, husband and wife, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. John 17, Jesus, you remember, prayed his high priestly prayer, and he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word in the unity of God himself and reflect that unity to the world. That's the picture we're reflecting. It can't be phony. You know, it can't, We're not putting on a smile to go out and then we come in we take it off. This has to be borne out because it's the way we are, not just what we do. We indwell one another as the Father does the Son and the Son does the Father. Moreover, our marriages are called to reflect the relationship of the communion of love between Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, 24 and 25, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And so there's a lot there, and we'll unpack that some uh, down the road, but uh, this relationship of total commitment to one another. Um, In his book, Trinity and Reality, Ralph Smith, some of you have met, who is a pastor in Japan, put it this way. He says, there is a slander that says because Christianity teaches that man is the head of his home, it permits men to abuse their wives. What the Bible really teaches is very different. According to the Bible, to be the leader means to sacrifice oneself for the other as Christ sacrificed himself for the church. If Christ is the pattern for the husband, and he is, then what the Bible calls for is self-sacrificial love that glorifies the wife. This is not a view that promotes abuse of any kind. The author of Hebrews makes a profound and powerful statement about marriage, about your marriage. He says, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulteresses God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I think this is a critical point about marriage. Um, The honorable marriage that is mentioned in Hebrews 13 is built around communion a communion that's pictured in the marriage bed. I'll say more about this later when we talk about sex. We often think of the Lord's table like the dinner table, which is one of the pictures that we have. Remember I talked about bed and board, Capon's book, that the dinner table is it's where the family gathers and we feed. There's a lot going on in a, in a metaphorical way at, at the dinner table. But the bed is the other picture, Christ and his bride in intimate communion. And so sex in marriage is meant to reflect that. And that's why sex outside of marriage is a false testimony. It, it distorts that. It makes it ugly. It's to be a place of beauty and glory. Private, yes. Intimate, yes. Important, yes. Yes. But the marriage bed is undefiled, and then though that love that happens at either the dinner table or in the marriage bed is to then spread to every room of the house, that love and communion, and then taken out into the world. Just like we come to church and we have communion, and then we all leave and we go to our houses to do what? To do what we did here on Sunday morning, to worship God, to live before Him, to love each other, to deal with sin, to praise God and to glorify Him. And then we come back here and we have an intimate time with our groom, with our husband, Christ. And we, we remember who He is and what He's done for us and who we are and why we're here. And then we go do it again. And marriage is that way. And God gives us these things to help us stay focused on what, uh, why we're here and what we're doing. And so... Uh, then uh, it extends our, our love, our communion, our little community, our family, husband and wife, and later perhaps children, is then extended into the future through mature godly children who replicate and build on that foundation of glory. Ultimately, the goal was what? What did God tell Adam and Eve to do right after they get married? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? Image bearers. That glorify God. Let's get this communion bigger. Why? Because bigger is more glorious. That's the goal. That was the original goal till sin messed it up. Those who are unfaithful to marriage and its intended purpose of glorifying God are guilty at one level another, or another of unfaithfulness, and the Bible makes many references to the spiritual adultery of God's people And the same kind of adultery, along with the physical kind, the Bible says God will judge. His judgment is seen in the unhappiness and the misery that many marriages reflect. This kind of judgment is meant to cause pain, uh, and pain is intended by God to get us to stop doing whatever it is we're doing that's causing the pain. Stick your hand in the fire, it hurts. You're supposed to pull it out, not stick it back in. It's to save your life. In other words, God's judgment should lead us to repentance. Now, Hebrews thirteen verse five follows verse four for a reason, and it says, let, we already read this. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have." Remember that when the context was the marriage bed is undefiled. Now he says, "I don't want. You, I want your conduct to be without covetousness." Be content with such things as you have. At the heart of most marital problems is discontent and selfishness. Which is another way of... You know, that's got it. Discontent and selfishness. The call to contentment includes contentment with the spouse that you've been given. That is your wife or your husband, just like those are your kids... And this is your body. And it got some defects, but it's mine. And I'm to get happy about it. It's interesting, God says to rejoice in and for all things. You say, but everything except God is imperfect. My wife, my kids, my house, my dog, my friends, God says, yeah, give thanks for all of those and rejoice in them. Yeah, but they're so, no. You change your attitude. I want you to start being thankful and grateful for what you do have, not what you don't have. And that's why you're not to covet your neighbor's wife or anything else that your neighbor's. So your call to contentment includes your spouse. Your spouse is God's gift to you. God thought you needed that person. I know your spouse has problems, and your life would be much easier if they didn't make things so hard for you. But God reminds you that he will never leave you or forsake you. You are a follower of Christ, his disciple, and he has many things to teach you in order to conform you to his image. Self-denial and contentment, then, is central to your ultimate holiness and happiness. Selfishness and discontent, again, the definition of immaturity, are the two basic sins that undermine marriages and cultivate bitterness and anger and resentment and clamor and malice and harshness and sour attitudes. These sins often lead people to abandon their marriages or to stop working on them and in some cases to seek comfort in illegitimate places. It's easy to look and see somebody else and think, oh, I wish I had what they had. Oh, really? Be careful what you wish for. Discontented people, you see, are not teachable because they refuse to recognize that their discontent comes from within. They're certain that their lack of happiness is someone else's fault. If only my wife or my husband would do this or that or stop doing this or that, then I would be content and happy. But in most cases, the root problem is a refusal to give thanks, which includes giving thanks for what we have. And so the Apostle Paul instructs us, Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always, how often? always, for what? For all things. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why James can say, consider it all joy when you face various trials. Well, that's crazy. Yeah, it is. It takes supernatural grace of God for me to look at a problem, a flat tire, and to see the hand of God in it and to say thank you. It doesn't mean I have to giggle about it or or be thrilled about it, but it does mean I can't be bitter and angry about it. This is the statement that he makes right before he begins his discussion about marriage. Discontented people cannot be thankful, and unthankful people can't have the wisdom that contentment brings. It's not possible. James 3, 13-18 Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is for first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And that applies to our marriages. When selfish and discontented people, that is, immature people, get married, the selfishness and discontent are only magnified. They don't go away. Unless the issue issues of selfishness and discontent are addressed and conquered, the misery will grow over time, not diminish. It accumulates. Bitterness builds up more and more. Often, unmarried people are afraid of contentment because they think that if they get content with their condition, then God might make them stay that way. But that's not trusting God. And if I'm content, I won't care anymore, right? It's not true. So, um, another Capin quote about how God judges sin. We all, often think of pictures of, you know... Uh, iron brimstone, or that kind of judgment. But most judgment comes in the thing itself. Um, Anger produces all kind of problems, for example. Um, So he says, A husband and a wife cannot long exist as one flesh if they are habitually unkind, rude, or untruthful. Every sin breaks down the body of the mystery, puts asunder what God and nature have joined, the marriage rite is aware of this it bids us come at the marriage ceremony it bids us to loving to honoring to cherishing for just that reason this is above all this is all obvious in the extreme but it needs saying loudly and often the only available candidates for matrimony are every last one of them sinners As sinners, they are in a fair way to wreck themselves and anyone else who gets within arm's length of them. Without virtue, therefore, no marriage will make it. The first of all vocations, the ground line of the walls of the new Jerusalem, is made of stuff like truthfulness, patience, love, and liberality, of prudence, justice, and temperance, and courage, and of all their adjuncts and circumstances, manners, consideration, fair speech, and the ability to keep one's mouth shut and one's heart open as needed. Amen. So since bitterness is a sin that is cultivated over time, as it grows, the Bible says it overflows. At the slightest jostle, spillage occurs. What used to take, so I see this all the time in marriages, newlyweds have have some kind of a quarrel. What happened? Well, earlier in the day this happened, and then by 2 o'clock, you know, this was said, and then by evening we were both just furious and not speaking to each other. Fast forward 10 years. What happened? Well, everything I just described happened, but it happened in three minutes. Because it's happened so many times, we just cut out all the, we didn't waste any time. We just, okay, I've been here before, I know where this is going, I'll just, let's just go for it. Let's just get out the daggers and let's go ahead and do the dirty work. Why? Because bitterness has taken root. And so what used to take a long time to develop manifests itself instantly and the spiritual fruit of long-suffering is long gone. In fact, all the fruit of the Spirit shrivels up in this kind of marriage. Where is the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control? In other words, this is a husband and a wife that are not under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Literally, where it says be not drunk with wine, so don't be intoxicated with wine, because that's dissipation. You, you act like a drunk. What would we say? You're, he's under the influence of alcohol. He's staggering and stammering and passing out. The Bible says instead, you be drunk on the Holy Spirit. You be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Let, let the Holy Spirit control your attitudes, your speech. And we'll know that when you're in self-control. And when you're kind, and when you take hard situations and deal with them like grown-ups, like Christ is the grown-up. Isn't he the perfect mature man? Perfectly selfless, laid down his life for his friends. He's the image. That's what we're going for, is to be grown-ups. And I guarantee you in our marriages, when we're having problems, it's because one or both of us are acting like little children, like the two two two-year-olds. So, um, this marriage then that I've just described that's out of control is reverting to a life of unbelief, which is contrary to the description of those who are in Christ. And Galatians 5:24 through 26, and those who are in Christ, is that you? Yeah, that's me. Okay, let's finish. Those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, and envying one another. Scorecards have too often replaced the Bible in marriages. I know you've had it hard, and I don't have to live with your spouse. No one knows your challenges, but God does know your situation, and He says that you're to give thanks always for all things which includes your spouse. I am going to make a footnote. because I don't want to be misunderstood. Am I saying that if somebody's being abused, that they should get happy about it? Absolutely not. If there's a fundamental violation of the promises that were made in the marriage, absolutely not. In fact, if you're in any danger whatsoever, get out, get help, don't stay. The church should provide refuge and cover and grace to deal with that kind of destructive sin. I don't have time in every study to cover every detail. Are there exceptions? Yes. But they are exceptions. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about two Christian people who are committed to following Christ who have now sinned in some way and need to deal with it uh, and grow and mature. So just want to make make that clear. Um So I am speaking of two professing Christians, though in this bad marriage, who have grown in their discontent and their snarkiness with each other and have forgotten the glory that they're called to manifest in their marriage. And I'm calling, if that's you, in any way, I'm asking you to do something. Stop it. Just stop doing that. Well, that's pretty simplistic. Yeah, it is. And it's so simple, you ought to just be able to do it. Just say, I'm not going to talk to my wife that way. When it says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, how many does that allow? Zero. No foul language, no yelling, no name-calling, none of that is allowed. Only grace. Only words that are good for building up. And does that mean you can't have a criticism? No, you can do that. You can speak the truth in love. Honey, I need to talk to you. What you just did was wrong. But I'm there to help the situation, not throw gas on a fire and and see if we can just burn this whole thing down so I can vent. It's not about you. It's about the glory of Christ. Shut up. If You're out of control. Um... So, you you can't control the other person, but you can, by the grace and power of God, control yourself and your attitude. Did the spirit move out or was he pushed out? Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. God is grieved when husbands and wives are not in communion with each other. When the two of you are not walking in the spirit, when your house isn't filled with the spirit, when the fruit of the spirit is absent in your home, then the Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 7, your prayers are hindered. God says, I'm not listening to you. Don't kid yourself. If a husband and wife are not in true communion with one another, then there is no possibility that they are in true communion with God. The whole point of the communion table at church on Sunday is to remind us, of how we're supposed to live when we leave church, and there's no greater necessity, a necessary place for that true communion than a Christian marriage. Um, To consistently fail to live in communion is a profaning of the Lord's table. So grace is the only sure foundation of a Christian marriage and home. That begins by truly receiving the grace of God with a deeply thankful heart and then expressing gratitude for His grace. How? By extending that grace to other people. Again, if it's a husband and wife or children, of course, this will mean willingly and joyfully sacrificing yourself for someone else and doing it repeatedly over a long period of time. A lifetime. How does that work? You mean I've got to always do what the other person wants to do? Well no, we can discuss what we're having for dinner and you know, those kinds of there's all kinds of sharing. But if, if both people, though, are doing this, that's the goal, right? Is deferring, seeking the good of others, helping. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So there is a fair amount of endurance in this process. This is serious business and it will require long, hard work. Of course, you knew that when you signed up to follow Christ, right? Did you really think the crown would come before the cross? And so I suspect you have a good idea of what your husband or wife needs to work on. I pass out a card right now, right? have you fill it out. Um, You know all the places where they're not acting like they're supposed to. You can probably quote a few verses that apply to them. Uh, But there's a verse, a pesky verse, that stands in the way. Uh, Matthew 22:39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a responsibility for every Christian. So um, let's stop. We're, gonna, we're right at the end here. I'm gonna, we're gonna, Right now I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and I'm going to read a prayer, and I'd like you to pray this prayer. I'm going to say a sentence and let you have a moment, uh, and um, I'm going to close with just a few things for us to do here. So let's bow. Lord, I am a sinner with a keen eye for the sins of others, but a dim eye when it comes to my own. Please search me and try me and see if there is any hurtful way in me. Help me to see my own sins clearly, more clearly than before. Help me to own them, to hate them, to confess them, and to repent of them. Help me to answer these questions honestly so I can deal with my sins appropriately and move to be restored in my communion with you and with my spouse. I long to be filled with contentment and gratitude and to extend your amazing grace to all those that you have placed in my life. Amen. So now, then, as you leave here and go home, it would be a great time to confess sin. Confession is just agreeing with God. God, you convicted me of my sins. You're right about me. It's agreeing with God about what he says about you and about sin. So 1 John, we quote this every Sunday in our liturgy, right? 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the way, that says we're to confess our sins, plural, which means particular sins. Lord, I confess that I lost my temper an hour ago. And I also said some things I shouldn't have said. Now, you're confessing to God right now, and when you're done, you're going to confess to the person you did that to. It's agreeing with God, confessing all the sins, particular sins you know, not, Lord, forgive me my many sins. That's too general. But then it says, and if you confess your sins, he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness because there were probably some sins you committed that you didn't think about. God will cover the others. He wants you to deal with the ones that you know about. And then he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if you do that, does God forgive you? Well, he says he does. That's faith. I believe what God says, his promises. And so what's next? Ephesians 4, 31. Let all bitterness, all of it. Every last speck of it. All bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's bad intent, right? And, boy, the Bible is pushy. And be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. Like, okay, I forgive you, now go away. No, no, no. Forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. That's the that's the standard. Does Jesus send us away after he forgives us, or does he draw us near? Therefore. Y'all know that saying? When you see therefore, look and see what it's there for. Okay? It's because you've put away bitterness and wrath and anger and all that, and you've taken up kindness and tender heartedness. And forgiveness, therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. In the Bible, love is always about giving and sacrifice. Is there an emotional element? Yes. Is there a sentimental element? Yes. Is there an erotic element? In the case of marital love, of course. But at the core of love is self-sacrifice, giving. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. laid down his life. And so does this work? I've I've literally had people say, I don't think that'll work. No, you won't work, but it'll work. Um, it works if you'll work. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not to your own understanding, and all your way acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. This is where faith comes in, believing God and then acting on it. And so let, let go and get happy about what God has done for you and what he is doing in you, and now he wants to work through you and bring joy to your marriage and your household. Godly marriages are built, again, on self sacrifice and service with contentment and gratitude. So, um, I got one other thing after this. I'm just going to read Luke 6, 37, 38. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And then listen to this Give, and it will be given to you. <laughs> Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. And running over will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So let's go get to work on glorifying God in our marriages. Now, the last thing, tonight was just an introduction, setting the table, getting the big picture of what we're trying to do. Bring glory to God in our marriages and getting a sense of what it is we're dealing with and what the goals are. And now we're going to come back in our future weeks and look at particular areas. We're going to break this out into things like talking about how do we solve, how do we resolve conflicts, how do we communicate, how do we uh, handle money, how about work, how about the different roles in marriage, how does that work, what does the Bible say? I want to think about this the way God does, not the way the television and the internet are telling me it's supposed to work. Um, the sermons, I'm going to be going back to this being cheated by philosophy series that I just started a couple of weeks ago because the world is telling us all kinds of other things. And if we listen to that, and it's, it's, it's bombarding us all the time, it will start to affect the way we think about marriage and our spouses, and that can be more than dangerous. Any questions, comments, um, we will, and let me say this, any questions you've got, uh, you know, you can, ha- if you don't mind writing them out or emailing me, uh, put them on a card, hand them to me, we will, and then we'll have an open Q&A time, uh, maybe more than one as we go through this series, but any question about marriage at all, um I won't promise you I know the answer. I'll try to find the answer if I don't have it, but having it ahead of time is sometimes useful. Anything now? Anybody? Well, thank you for coming out and taking this seriously. I know we've got, again, a range of people who've been doing it for a while and others who hope to be doing it for a while. Um, And so may the Lord bless you in this important mission that God's called us to. Father, we thank you for letting us do this together, for having good friends, having other Christians to labor with and to be next to us, to encourage us and help us. Lord, I pray for every marriage here that you would uh, stir us up to fresh labors and desires to continue to make progress, to grow and mature and to glorify you. I pray for every unmarried person here that desires to be married, that you would be working in them to prepare them, to make them valuable for a spouse. And I pray you'd be at work in their future spouse, wherever they might be right now. May they be being equipped to be godly, to be kind, to be diligent, so that they might come together and form a new Christian household that glorifies you. Go with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.